Welcome to the British Army's Leadership Podcast, brought to you by the Centre for Army Leadership. Hello and welcome to this, the latest Centre for Army Leadership podcast with me, Langley Sharp. It is my pleasure to introduce our guest today, Lord Karen Billy Moria. Lord Billy Moria has quite an extensive professional resume, but is arguably best known as the founder of Cobra Beer, which for the beer connoisseurs amongst you, has been awarded a total of 128 gold and grand gold medals since 2001, making it one of the most awarded beers in the world. Lord Billy Moria is the founding chairman also of the UK India Business Council, a deputy lieutenant of Greater London, and a former chancellor of Thames Valley University, the youngest university chancellor in the UK when appointed. He's also one of the first two visiting entrepreneurs at the University of Cambridge, and a founding member of the Prime Minister of India's Global Advisory Council. In 2006, he was appointed the Lord Billimoria of Chelsea, making him the first ever Zoroastrian Parsi to sit in the House of Lords. In 2014, he was installed as the seventh Chancellor of the University of Birmingham, making him the first Indian-born Chancellor of a Russell Group University in Great Britain. And in 2020, he was appointed President of the Confederation of British Industry, the CBI. Moreover, Lord Billamoria has been awarded an honorary doctorate from no less than 11 universities. That's probably about half of his very extensive CV, so quite an illustrious career to date, and a valuable guest from whom we can all learn very important leadership lessons. Lord Billamoria, a very warm welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure to, to have you on the show, and I know you've been a um, a, a, an avid avid supporter of the British Army for, for some time and a regular speaker here at the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst, passing on your lifelong lessons of leadership to, to the officer cadets as they go through training. And I guess much of your affiliation to the British Army uh, uh, is um, reflective of your strong military connections and linkages um, back in your native India and the, the Indian Army. Now, I understand you spent your your formative years, uh, most of your teams uh, growing up in your native India and your father, General Billy, as he was known, um, was a three-star general, lieutenant general in the, in the Indian Army, which means, I guess, that you, like many other service families, uh, made a, a huge number of sacrifices um, as, you, as you were growing up. Would you mind telling us about those early years? Yes, I, I was uh, born into the Army family and my father was a, a captain and uh, he was commissioned into the Gurkhas, the 2nd, 5th Gurkha Rifles Frontier Force, which is a very famous battalion in the Indian Army. Uh, it was called the BC Battalion because uh, it won three Victoria Crosses in the Second World War. One was posthumous, uh, two survived, and both served with my father from the time he was commissioned. Uh, Gajay Gale BC and Agan Singh Rai BC. And I was lucky to have known them from my earliest memories and uh, to have been, to know them. Uh, living legends was just something I was very, very lucky and fortunate. And uh, we moved around a lot. Uh, my father would be posted somewhere different. Uh, he would be away at um, non-family stations, whether it was in the Congo with the United Nations peacekeeping force, uh, what was then the Belgian Congo. Uh, and uh, then he, was on the Chinese border, 
Um, he uh, fought in the liberation of Bangladesh. And of course, this is the 50th anniversary. I was a 10-year-old boy at school in Hyderabad when he was uh, um, in that. And of course, very worried as a young boy, would, would my father come back alive? Um, so I remember that so clearly it had a big impact on me. So, so yes, so the moving around, uh, going back to my mother's family home in Hyderabad, which was base whenever my father was away, and sometimes not seeing my father for a whole year. That we'd, he'd come back on leave, being on the Chinese border in Ladakh, up uh, 12, 13,000 feet high, living in a tent at minus 30 degrees, and he'd get to come home for two months once a year. And those were my earliest memories of my father coming home on leave. Um, and then we learned to be adaptable, you know, because I went to seven different schools. I ended up at boarding school in South India, 8,000 feet high in a hill station called Uti. Uh, and, but this moving around uh, taught you from a very young age uh, to be adaptable. Mm -hmm. And you'd have to make new friends, new people. And also I learned from my parents that wherever you go, however remote the place might be, there will always be something interesting about the place and there will always be interesting people and you will always learn. Uh, and I was very lucky. So I've lived all around India, been to school all around India, uh, and know India and love India, thanks to my father. Well, as you say, a lot of, uh, a lot of sacrifice made, both yourself and, and the family growing up, but, but many life skills learned as well as a result. So I imagine your, your, your father was a huge influence on you and the, and the lead you, you subsequently became in, in business. Who else influenced you growing up and, and the person you were to become? Yes, my, my father was amazing. I mean, my brother and I, um, he would uh, immerse us in, in, in military life. I mean, in those days, I, I, um, I experienced live firing at the age of eight. I was presented my first cookery uh, by the Gurkhas at the age of eight. I fought my first um, boxing match in front of the whole battalion at the age of eight against Agan Singh Rai, the Victoria Cross holder's son, who was 12 years old because Gurkhas are quite short. And so he was the same height as me, but he was, I was eight and he was 12, and he was way stronger than I was. So uh, the fact that it was a draw at the end was quite an achievement. I was going to ask, did you win? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and so, you know, the, the, my, I've experienced live shelling at a young age. Um, you know, I uh, just brought up in the army. I was, when I was older, we would go out when my father was commanding a desert brigade uh, and we'd be on, on, on holiday from boarding school. Uh, we'd go out on the tanks on exercise and, and camp out in the middle of the desert. So I've, I've experienced army life from a very young age, again, thanks to my father. Uh, and he was just brilliant. And the, 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 I, I saw him lead his troops in action, so to say. Uh, and it taught me a lot. So those leadership skills were almost by osmosis yeah. uh, throughout my childhood. More broadly, you've got a uh, quite a rich history of military service in your family. I understand your grandfather, uh, Nasavanji uh, Bilimoria, attended Sandus. I think I believe he's one of the the um, the, the first Indian uh, officer cadets to come through uh, Sandhurst in that era. Ended up as a brigadier in the Indian Army, and uh, and your grandfather. I also understand. Sorry, your your wife's grandfather was a, a squadron leader in the Royal Indian Air Force. So a real connection with service. Does that re resonate across across the family? That that, that sense of service. Absolutely. And, and then if you get it, it goes beyond that. So my grandfather's cousins were generals. My one of my grandfather's cousins was Admiral Karshiji, the chief of the Indian Navy. Uh, so we've got all three services in, in, in the family. And now I'm an honorary group captain in the Royal Air Force, which my grandfather would be very proud of seeing me in uniform now. Uh, but but the, 
my grandfather, Brigadier Billamoria, he was uh, one of the few Indians who was commissioned at Sandhurst between the First and Second World Wars. And one of the roles I hold now, I'm very proud to chair the Memorial Gates on Constitution Hill next to Buckingham Palace at Hyde Park Corner in London, which commemorates the service and sacrifice of the five million volunteers who served from South Asia, Africa, and the Caribbean in World War I and World War II. Uh, and the pavilion in the inside the roof of the pavilion are the names of the Victoria Cross and George Cross holders, including the three from my father's battalion. And, and, and at that time, the First World War, there were millions of Indians who served, and yet they were not allowed to become officers. Only the medics were allowed to become officers. And then after the First World War, it was realized that without that service and sacrifice of the Indians, the war would not have been won. Yeah. And so they allowed eight Indians per course at Sandhurst from 1922 to 1932. Um, and my grandfather was one of that very short list of individuals. They were called King's Commissioned Officers. And in 1932, the Indian Military Academy was founded in Dehradun in India. And my father was commissioned through the Indian Military Academy uh, years later. And in fact, my, my grandfather, when he was a cadet at Sandhurst, met another, I come from a very tiny community called the Zoroastrian Parsis. And he met another young Zoroastrian Parsi who was also studying in England. And that was my maternal grandfather, J.D. Italia, who was at Birmingham University uh, studying commerce. And they both met, not knowing that years later they'd be in-laws. Uh, and and my, my grandfather at Birmingham learned how to fly while he was at, at university and then joined the Royal Indian Air Force when he went back to India and served until the end of the war, uh, retiring at the end of the war as a squadron leader. Uh, so yes, and, and now I'm Chancellor of the University of Birmingham. My mother went to the University of Birmingham and her brother went to the University of Birmingham. That's quite a rich, uh, quite a rich military history there in, in, in one family. And so following your uh, undergraduate degree as you, as you moved out of childhood then, um, you undergraduate degree in commerce from the University of um, Hyderabad and you flew to England uh, age 19, I understand, to continue your education and become an, an accountant with Ernest & Young before reading uh, law at Cambridge University. So I wonder if you'd just tell us a little bit more about that, that period of your life and uh, why, you, why you're not a very successful lawyer or accountant now. Well, the first decision I had to make was to not join the army. And, and I, I consider that very, very, I consider that very carefully uh, and uh, made the decision that I would go down a, a business corporate career as opposed to going joining the army. So that, that was, uh, and, I, and I skipped a couple of years. I was lucky I graduated at the age of 19 uh, with a degree in commerce and then studied in the UK. And I, I didn't know where I would end up. I, I, I came to study like my mother had come to study and like my grandfathers had both come to study in the UK. So I was the third generation to study in the UK. Uh, and um, I, I took it one step at a time. So I knew during my chartered accountancy, fantastic qualification, great, great learning of business, but I didn't want to be an accountant for the rest of my life. And my favorite subject in studying accounting was law. Uh, and even during my commerce degree, I really enjoyed law. And then I got a place at Cambridge to do law. And I was still not even a mature student because I was still very young. And I loved my time at Cambridge. And it was while I was there that I immersed myself in university life as well as um, studying the law uh, and came up with my idea for Cobra Beer while I was a student. And, and that, that idea evolved uh, from being uh, dissatisfied with uh, the lagers that I was consuming. I found them too fizzy. I loved the real ales that I was introduced to. 
Yeah, but I found that I couldn't drink the fizzy lagers on their own, and I couldn't drink the real ales uh, with food, although I loved them in a pub. And that's when the idea came and evolved um, that I would produce my own beer. I wanted to bring it from India, and uh, it would be uh, the refreshment of a lager and the smoothness of an ale combined, and that would accompany all food, uh, including uh, Indian food. And that was my idea, which I had as a student, student in Cambridge. Um, so you're dissatisfied with something, and you think you can do it better, you can do it differently. In other ways, you're passionate about something on one hand, you hate something on the other hand. Mm. And, and I think entrepreneurship is all about um, seeing problems, uh, but also coming up with a solution uh, to the problem. And so what makes a good entrepreneur? The most important attribute of an entrepreneur uh, is actually being creative and innovative. And I was told throughout my childhood that I was not creative. Why? Because I was useless at art. I couldn't paint. Um, uh, I passed grade one in music and then I was told by my family, please, please spare us, you're tone deaf. Uh, so I was just went through all my childhood, my studies, believing and being told that I was not creative. And it's only when I started my business as an entrepreneur that I realized uh, that I am actually very creative. And it's such an important skill. And I, I, I really believe that our children from a young age should be encouraged to unleash that entrepreneurial spirit that's within all of us and to have that confidence to be entrepreneurial entrepreneurial and creative whatever their career uh, may be and that's one characteristic i think an entrepreneur needs to have second characteristic an entrepreneur needs to have is is one word a very short word guts you've got to have guts to be an entrepreneur you've got to have the guts to do it in the first place because many people have business ideas how many of them have the guts to give up whatever they're doing, their job, their career, the opportunity that's ahead of them, the security that they have, and take that risk and cross that gap and make that leap, have a go at it, and try and put your idea into action. That takes guts. But more than that, entrepreneurs also have the guts to stick with it when others would give up. And it's a really tough journey. It's not easy. Uh, and then many, many times, where you need to have that resilience to keep going in that Churchill spirit of never give up, never, ever give up. I'd like to come back to some of those themes, particularly talk about risk there and, um, and, and never giving up, because I know you've had some, um, some tough times throughout your business career, which perhaps we can reflect on in a minute. But before we um, dive a little bit more into, into the, the Cobra story, and I've heard you talk about it before, and it is, um, and, and it is fascinating, you, your entrepreneurial spirit didn't start there. And understand that you um, had some pre-Cobra uh, ventures as well, um, one of them being selling polo sticks to Harrods. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, well, well I, I, um, when I was at Cambridge, I played polo for Cambridge University. In fact, I learned, I learned how to play polo with the Indian Army, and starting with riding with the president's bodyguard in, when my father was posted in Delhi. I was put on a horse from the age of two, uh, again, thanks to the Army. And then uh, I learned how to play polo in India. When I was at Cambridge, I uh, I played for Cambridge. We, we beat Oxford in my final year. And um, I organized and led the first uh, ever Cambridge University polo team tour of India. And my father and the Indian Army helped out. The Maharaja of Jaipur helped out. Uh, and who was a friend of my father. They were my father's ADC to the president of India. That's like being equity to the queen. And the Maharaja uh, of of, of Jaipur, who was a great friend of my father's, and at that time was adjutant to the president's bodyguard, um, uh, the, the equivalent of the lifeguard of Blues and Royals. And, and so 
they helped organize. And Rajiv Gandhi was prime minister at the time, and he'd been to Cambridge himself. So he also helped out organizing this tour. <laughs> That's uh, a good team, Rajiv. So uh, thanks to all their help. And we had a great tour. And when I came back, the, the stick makers in Calcutta, I remember playing, playing in Calcutta, they said, look, you're Indian, you live in England, will you sell some of our sticks for us? And I said, well, give me some samples. They said, no, 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 you have to buy them. I said, okay, I'm going to use them anyway. So I, I bought a huge bundle of polo sticks. And, uh, and I, I phoned one of the saddlers I used to play against who was based in Colchester, uh, and uh, where, where we played matches there. And I invited him to lunch to Fulham in London. And we had lunch at a restaurant called Pigeon, I remember it very clearly. And I sold him uh, my first batch of polo sticks. And he wrote out a check for half the price of the sticks. And that was my money that I started my business with. And, and I put the order in Calcutta, flew out to Calcutta, and brought in these sticks. And the sticks were different in, in a way. They were lighter. The, the heads were made out of bamboo and not willow. And I ended up selling them to Harrods and Lily Whites and Giddens or all kinds of standards. And I was in business. And that was the start of your journey. So perhaps if we turn back to, to to risk again, and obviously those those early days, and, and no doubt this has been a, a theme of yours throughout your career about um, when to take risk and when not to. So what, what advice have you got for young leaders out there about, about taking risk? When you have an, an, an idea, a business idea, and you really believe you can put it into, into practice, um, you've, got to, you've got to have the guts to go for it, and, and you've got to make the, 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 the leap. Mm-hmm. And that is taking a risk. And you've got to cross the, the credibility gap. And the credibility gap, the way I describe it, is that when you're starting business, nobody knows you, nobody knows your brand, your product, and you've got to convince people to buy your product, to sell to you, to finance you. Why do they do all those things to an unknown individual with no track record? Um, and they do that, I believe, if you have absolute faith and passion and belief in your product and in your idea and in your brand, and that gives people the faith to trust you to give you a chance. And I call that crossing the credibility gap. And, and that enables you to take the risk. And there is risk. And people always say, oh, entrepreneurs take a lot of risk. Yes, we do. But you also take calculated risks. Yeah. And you're also always looking at the downside. You're always saying, what's the worst that could happen? Mm-hmm. Yes, this is the upside. But what's the worst that could happen as well? But I guess with, with risk comes uh, some mistakes and failures as well. Have you, have you got any that you reflect on where you think, no, I got that wrong. That, that didn't quite work out how I expected it. And, and how did you bounce back? What did you learn from that? How many hours have we got? <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 one of my favorite sayings is good judgment comes from experience and experience comes from bad judgment. So there's no shortcut to making those mistakes and ideally learning from those mistakes. And I've made many, many mistakes. I could give you many examples. One of the earliest mistakes I made was to do with the name. Uh, my business partner, Arjun Reddy, and I, there were two of us. We started from scratch with 20,000 pounds in debt. And when we started working on the Cobra Beer idea, and by the way, that was luck. Because the, the luck comes into the story a lot. And you talk about risk, but there's also luck. And the best definition of luck that I've ever heard was in the Harvard Business School classroom. Luck is when determination meets opportunity. If you're determined, you'll see that opportunity. If you're not, those opportunities go past you all your life. You won't even see them. And linked to that is the word serendipity. Serendipity is seeing what everyone else sees, but thinking what no one else has thought. So you, you get lucky by being determined. And we got this lucky introduction. And my big idea, the Cobra Bay idea, we were importing polo sticks. We were importing high fashion garments from India. We were importing leather and silk goods that we were selling to Selfridges and high fashion garments to Whistles and boutiques and Knightsbridge, building up experience and waiting for the big idea, the bigger idea. 
And then we got the chance introduction to the biggest independent brewery in India, in Bangalore, Mysore Breweries, who had the best brewmaster in India, all luck. Uh, and so when, you, when, you, when you're starting on that journey with that luck and with that determination, but then I made a mistake. We could have chosen any name. The brewery said, look, choose any name. And there's a story behind that, but it, it came down to that you choose your brand name. We want the prestige of exporting Cobra beer of exporting beer to, 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 to the UK. And the name we chose was Panther, as in leopard. And we had it designed. I took the artwork for the label from England when I landed in Bangalore. One of the first meetings, the brewery introduced me to the printers. I gave the artwork and I forgot about the name. I concentrated on developing Cobra beer, the liquid from scratch and all the packaging and the bottles and the cartons. Fast forward several months when the beer was actually maturing in the tanks, my partner phoned me up from England and I was staying with my great aunt, Gul Tata in Bangalore. And she called me one evening and said, Karan, I'm trying to pre-sell the beer before it arrives in the UK. I said, well done. And he said, but I can't sell a single bottle. I said, why? He said, nobody likes the name Panther. So why don't they like the name Panther? He said, I don't know, they don't like the name Panther. We had this argument about what we should do. And I said, I remember the name of the second choice. I can't remember the name. Can you look up the list of names we went through? He said, I went and I've already done that. It was Cobra. I said, okay, why don't you ask these same people who won't buy the beer called Panther if they'll buy it if it's called Cobra? He phoned me back within a day. In the meantime, I rushed to the printers the next morning on the way to the brewery. Have you printed those Panther labels? The only time in my life I didn't want something done. And I normally were chasing things to be done. And they said, no, we're waiting for the brewery to tell us. I said, don't print them. Wait till I tell you. Within 24 hours, Arjun called me and said, they love the name Cobra. Now, the lesson I learned there, but of course, I had to drop everything. My brother, Nader, had founded his own advertising agency in Hyderabad. I flew to Hyderabad. His team just dropped everything and we just designed the Cobra Beer label from scratch. And the lesson learned there is you can come up with an idea as an entrepreneur, but never go forward without checking it with your customers and your consumers first. Many wise words to take away there. Uh, I, I wanted to um, draw back to your point about credibility. And um, whilst we're firmly in the Cobra Beer uh, story now, the vision of Cobra Beer is to, as to aspire and achieve against all odds with integrity. I wondered if you just talk about that, particularly the notion of integrity. Why have you got that in, in your vision? And I'm sure that links absolutely to, to credibility. One of the people who's always inspired me uh, has been my great-grandfather, uh, Didi Italia, my maternal great-grandfather. And he was an entrepreneur, uh, ironically, in the drinks business. He nearly lost his business three times. I nearly lost my business three times. Uh, he looked after his family very well, did a lot of public service, um, and uh, ended up being in the Indian equivalent of the House of Lords, the Raja Sabha. So in many ways, I followed in his footsteps uh, four generations later. And his motto was uh, to aspire and achieve. And I uh, adopted that as my motto in my House of Lords, my coat of arms is aspire and achieve is the motto that I have. But for Cobra Beer, we expanded to aspire and achieve against all odds with integrity. And that's almost a definition of entrepreneurship. You come up with an idea, you want to get some of the idea, you've got all the odds stacked against you, you're little or no means, and you go out there, you make it happen. And most importantly, you do it with integrity, you play with a straight bat, you do the right thing. And the, the best definition of integrity that I've ever heard is actually from one of my colleagues in the House of Lords, Lord Williams. So when he was Rowan Williams, Archbishop of Canterbury, 
he visited the Zoroastrian Center in Harrow, and I'm patron of the Zoroastrian community in the UK, so I made the welcoming speech. And uh, when I sat down, he made a speech as Archbishop Canterbury, and he said, Lord Villamoria has used the word integrity twice in his speech. And the word integrity comes from the Latin and Greek words integer, integral, which mean wholeness. You cannot practice integrity if you're fragmented in front of the right. You can only practice integrity if you're whole and complete as an individual. And I've never forgotten that. Uh, and I think it's so important that whatever you do, uh, you do it with the right values. And right back to our early days, when we started Cobra, nobody told me to do it, but I would look out for opportunities where I could support charitable events. And we would give Cobra beer free as a donation to the charitable event to help them raise money, whether it's to be served or given as auction prizes or raffle prizes. Of course, we'd get profile from it as well, so it helped the brand. But in that way, over the years, we've now donated millions and millions of pounds and bottles of beer, including every year the Lord Mayor's curry lunch, which supports the Army Benevolent Fund, the soldiers' charity. We've been doing that from day one since 2008 for the last 13 years, and that Lord Mayor's curry lunch has raised over 2.6 million pounds wow. um, for the Army Benevolent Fund and the Soldiers' Charity. And Cobra's played a part in that. We've donated thousands of thousands of pounds worth of, of, of beer over these years. Just for that one initiative, we do that across I've supported Macmillan's Cancer. We have the House of Lords, House of Commons, tug of war every year. It's a big event. And I not only take, but even before I joined Parliament, um, we've donated the beer for that, thousands of pounds of beer. Every year they raise 150, 200, 250,000 pounds for Macmillan's Cancer. So it's wonderful to be able to do that. Tremendous, tremendous. I guess that work also in, in, infuses that mindset and that philosophy into the culture of your organisation. And, and that leads me on to my next question about um, servant leadership. And I understand that you are um, an advocate of servant leadership. And of course, you'll, you'll well know the, the, the motto of Sanders here, serve to lead. So it is something dear to, to our hearts and sort of fundamental to how uh, what the army believes in, in terms of uh, good and effective leadership is, is about serving others and, and putting others before your, yourself. So again, how do you infuse servant leadership in the, in the culture of, of, of your company? Yes, and, and, and just you know, before answering that question, just going back to the earlier question, it, it's got to come from within you to want to put back into the community. Mm -hmm. uh, you've got to, it, it, there's a bottle of water called Blue, B-E-L-U. I wondered why this water is getting so popular. It's the water we have in the House of Commons and the House of Lords. And then I realized that 100% of the profits of that water goes to water aid for clean, clean water saving uh, and sanitation saving lives. And so we teamed up with Blue, with the Cobra Foundation Blue Water joint brand, which we sell to thousands of restaurants. And we've raised hundreds of thousands of pounds over the years for water aid, and we make nothing from it. We donate 100% of our profits from that water uh, to water aid. So I think it's just wonderful to be in a position to be able to do that. And, 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 and the way I express it is, it's not just good enough to be the best in the world, you've got to be the best for the world. It's not just what you do, it's how you do it. And when it comes to servant, servant leadership, uh, why are the services called the services? People probably don't, don't even think about that. Mm because the services serve. And the Santa's motto, as you said, serve to lead. Uh, the Indian Military Academy, which my father graduated from, uh, their motto uh, is a little longer than serve to lead, but uh, if I may paraphrase it, 
the, the, the safety, honor, and welfare of your country comes first always and every time. The safety and welfare of the troops that you command comes second always and every time. Your own safety and comfort comes last always and every time. That is the credo of a gentleman cadet at the Indian Military Academy to this day. So um, service leadership is absolutely crucial. Uh, and there are many ways in which I can, I can express that. Uh, you, you've got to get trust from people you work with and everyone you deal with. And again, I hate the business model where you have the businessmen and you can picture the people I'm talking about who bully, bully their suppliers and worship their customers and bully their employees and make a lot of money. Well, that's not the way to do it. I believe in the partnership model where everyone is a partner, your customers, your suppliers, your employees, your advisors, your accountants, your lawyers, your accountants. The, the advertising agency or PR agency, they're all partners. And that's so much better to work uh, in, in that way. And then you can engender trust. And one of the best descriptions of trust that I've ever um, been explained is by Francis Fry, the Harvard Business School professor, who during the pandemic gave us a virtual lesson on trust. And she expresses it as a, a triangle. To engender trust, one, you have to be authentic. Is it the real you? Second, you have to have logic. Do you have the ability to deliver and do what you say you're gonna be doing and have the professional competence to deliver? And the third is empathy. Are you in it for yourself or are you in it for them? So authenticity, logic, and empathy, that's how you get trust from people. Great, and I'm sure to a military organ, uh, audience, much of what you describe there, and hopefully many people outside the military, of course, but certainly those in the army recognize a lot of what you're talking about there um, and, and is, is fundamental to how we believe, as I say, um, effective leadership is enabled trust, leadership by example, or although you didn't mean that, you absolutely through your examples um, uh, talked about that, uh, empathy and, uh, and of course, service and servant leadership. How has your journey as a leader then changed throughout your career? How do you differ from the leader you were perhaps in those early years on Fulham Road to where you are now? Your, your current stage, your business career, and, and obviously uh, in the House of Lords as well, which we'll come on to. One of the great advantages that I have is that I, um, I trained with, uh, when I qualified as a Chartered Accountant in the City of London with what is today EY, Ernst Young, one of the largest companies in the world. So I've worked within a very large, very professional organization uh, where the concept of lifelong learning and continual professional development was embedded in us. And to this day, as a fellow of the Institute of Charter Counseling and Wales, I have to certify that I'm continually learning every year to retain my qualification. Uh, so I've had that, but I've also been an entrepreneur with just two of us, where when we started our business, I've done everything in the business from delivering the beer to making the beer, to doing telesales, field sales, keeping the books, doing the marketing, you know, everything in the business I've done myself. So now I've got a joint venture fast forward the last 12 years with Molson Coors, one of the largest brewers in the world, a multi-billion dollar company. And wherever I go in Molson Coors, I can identify with everyone because I've done what they've done myself. And that's a phenomenal position to be in, to have been able to start from scratch and build a brand, a household name today from scratch. And when you've got just the two of you and then you build, start building a team, and I, and I realized the power when you build a team. By the way, in India, they don't have the term SME. It's MSME, micro, small, and medium-sized enterprise. So you know, we started with a micro business, just two of us. 
And then as we grew into an S and then into an M, of course, now we're joint venture, huge company. The growth period when you're building a team, it's so important. One of the lessons I learned was you hire for will rather than skill, ideally both, but it's the attitude that counts. Much more important is a person's attitude. That's what I'm looking for. And then when you build a team, you've got to enable them to come up with ideas and make them happen quickly. And also to build a diverse team. I'm now president of the Confederation of British, British Industry at CBI, the largest business organization in the UK. I'm the first ethnic minority president of the CBI. And I've launched an initiative called Change the Race Ratio. And Change the Race Ratio is about championing uh, ethnic minority participation across all business. And we've got so many of the leading institutions from EY to Deloitte and Aviva and Microsoft, they've all joined uh, Change the Race Ratio. Uh, which, and I saw that firsthand when I built a mini United Nations when I was building COVID with young people from all around the world, from every continent, of different backgrounds, different mindsets, different cultures. And you put them together and what you get is a buzz. And that buzz creates an innovation and that innovation creates growth. And we grew at a compound annual growth rate of 40, 40% year on year for the first 18 years of our existence. And I would not have been able to do that without that diversity uh, that I had that generated it. I may come back to um, diversity in a minute, if I may, but I want to come back to, you mentioned about your, your business being in facing turbulent times, I think three times throughout your, your career, uh, not least one of those being um, after the, the, the crash in 2008, 2009. And you also talk about continuous learning and development. So what did you learn from that period specifically? And, and particularly about leading through crisis. There's a lot of people out there listening now who certainly over the last 18 months have, have led through and continue to lead through some very, very difficult times. What's your advice based on, the, based on your experience? Yeah, and just, to, just to correct what you, what you said, um, it, 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 I've had turbulent times many, many times, <laughs> but I've nearly lost my business three times. Three times. And each of the three times is very different. And, and that's the first thing about crises is they come out of the blue. Uh, how many people predicted 9-11? Nobody. The financial crisis of 2008-2009, how many people predicted that? The, 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 Her Majesty the Queen, I remember a year after the crisis, 2009-2010, went to open a new building at the London School of Economics. And she walked around the new building and met, met the famous economic professors and economists and said, why didn't any of you spot this? How many economists in the world spotted the financial crisis coming? It was less than a handful in the whole world that predicted it. Um, similarly, the pandemic. We knew pandemics might come in the future. Who predicted that we would have a global pandemic on the scale that we've had? A tragic, awful pandemic um, since uh, February, March uh, 2020. Nobody predicted it. So the thing with crises, they come out of the blue. It's how you deal with them. Uh, that matters. It, that was what would have determined whether you survive or not as a business. And in my case, all three of my crises were different, but the three things that got me through were exactly the same. And I think you can apply this to any institution, you can apply this to a country. Um, the first is to have a strong brand. And uh, at Cobra, we have a, um, you know, a very strong, resilient brand. Uh, and in, when I did the joint venture with Milson Coors, uh, they uh, described uh, us as having an extraordinary brand. And I took it as a compliment. They said, no, 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 we have six criteria which determine whether you're an extraordinary brand. 
Uh, one is whether you uh, are based on an undeniable brand truth. In our case, the brand truth is the extra smooth, less gassy taste of cobra that makes it go well with all food, the sort of brute smooth floral food. The second thing is uh, an extraordinary brand uh, never compromises on its principles and, and, and never takes any shortcuts. Third thing is extraordinary brand has an instantly recognizable iconic look. The fourth thing is extraordinary brand delivers a relevant and consistent experience. So you're not, uh, it's not a, a, a one win wonder. It's in our case, hundreds of millions of bottles, time after time, each one tasting the same as the one before uh, and producing that consistent experience. The fifth is extraordinary brands create loyal brand champions. That's the most important one where people will follow you, people will look out for you, people will be disappointed if your product is not available. And the sixth one is extraordinary brands deliver extraordinary profits. They actually deliver the results. So an extraordinary brand will help get you help you get, get you through a crisis. Mm -hmm. And through this pandemic, by the way, Cobra has been very resilient. Our restaurants, sadly, many of them have been shut most of the time. But our supermarket sales, uh, it was those sales and the iconic big bottle of Cobra, we survived uh, thanks to that. Uh, the second thing that helps you get through a crisis is having a good team, a loyal team that will stand by you. And family, if you have family. I, I met my wife one year after I started Cobra. Uh, without her support, I wouldn't be here talking to you. So uh, a good team that stands by you. I've had phenomenal loyal team members who've been by my side. In the army, you have the phenomenal esprit de corps. That is the essence of it, where, where, where literally people are willing to give their lives, give their lives for their regiment, for their country, for their, for their comrades um, and their friends and their colleagues. Um, and it's, it's more than just following an order. It's that esprit de corps and, and that team, that strong team. And the third is, is, um, is integrity, playing with a straight back, the right values. So strong brand, loyal team and family support and integrity, and you can get through any crisis. And do, you, do you think that exists in business more broadly nowadays? Those, I mean, we, we speak to a lot of um, uh, corporations and businesses about uh, values, for example, and you mentioned their integrity and values. Um, and, and looking after your people, building those teams, building that, 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 that ethos, that culture. We understand intrinsically in the military how powerful those components are. Do, do you think that is understood widely in the, in the business world? Absolutely. More and more now, you have um, a, a, an absolute demand, a demand for four values. Uh, you know, it started off with PPP, People, Planet, Profits. Mm -hmm. Then you uh, CSR, Corporate Social Responsibility. And then now you talk about ESG, in, Environmental and Social and Governance. Um, so, it, it, you know, investors are demanding it. Employees are demanding it. Customers are demanding it. Suppliers are demanding it. Um, you, and you talk to young people today, what really matters to young people, two things more than other, more important than others. Survey after survey shows this. One is they believe passionately in sustainability, the environment, climate change, biodiversity. It really matters to them. And the second thing is they really believe in diversity and inclusion. Mm -hmm. And they look out for those things when they're applying to a company or want to join a company to see if company actually practices those things. 
I'm going to come back now, the last uh, question before we go to our quick fire round. And, and I want to draw back to diversity because I know uh, you've spoken very eloquently about your, your work in that space. And I know that you've spoken in the House of Commons about the immigration policy um, and the importance of bringing um, uh, the, the brightest and the best here to the UK uh, to develop their skills and their business plans. So, succinctly, why does, why does diversity matter? Diversity and inclusion uh, go hand in hand. And there's a Harvard Business School, um, Harvard Business Review, paper that was written and that was titled, uh, Diversity Without Inclusion is Useless. So you've got to have diversity and inclusion. And I've seen it work time after time in my own business, Cobra Beer, as well as I've seen it work through the facts. McKinsey recently, in 2019, uh, they produced a report and it showed that the top quartile of companies that embrace diversity and inclusion are 36% more profitable than the bottom quartile. So it, it makes business sense, not just the right thing to do, it makes business sense. Deloitte have carried out work that very clearly proves that more diverse companies are more innovative. Again, I've seen that in my own business with Cobra Beard. So it makes business sense to do it, that's for sure. Um, but the diversity also means you have uh, a team that is more innovative, more creative, more productive, that produces better results, and actually a happier team. And I remember my father, my father, when he, he retired, he was commander-in-chief uh, of the Central Indian Army. Uh, and in India, the, you would, in anywhere else, he'd be a full general. But in India, there's only one full general, and that's the CGS, the chief of the army staff. So he was 350,000 troops. And wherever I went, my father, everyone seemed very happy. Everyone was smiling. I said, Dad, what's the secret? He said, the secret is not just having an efficient team, it's having a happy and an efficient team. And I, I've always remembered that. So I think uh, diversity is, is so crucial that when you look at Parliament, when I was at Cambridge in the 1980s, I remember 1987, we had the news that the first four ethnic minority members of Parliament had been elected to the House of Commons since the Second World War. And there was one Indian who was in the House of Lords, ironically, uh, who was at Birmingham University in the 1950s with my mother. So five parliamentarians in 1987 of ethnic minority origin. Fast forward, I'd been in the House of Lords 15 years. In 2012, we had a photograph on the steps of Westminster Hall, the 900-year-old hall in Parliament, of the ethnic minority members 25 years later, after 1987. 25 years later, there were 69 of us on the steps from five to 69. Fast forward from 2012 to 2019, after the last election we had, we had a photograph on the steps of Westminster Hall. They're now over 100 plus. Now, what, that's amazing, you know, from 1975 to today, over 100, but 100 as a percentage of parliamentarians is still 7.5%, whereas the population, 15% of the population of the UK actually final, so we're only halfway there. Mm. And yet you look at the cabinet table, Look at the diversity around the cabinet table. The Chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak of Indian origin, Home Secretary Preeti Patel of Indian origin, Kwasi Kwarteng, Alok Sharma, I could go on. That's just at the cabinet table. So now we have this country where I really believe, when I came as a student in the 1980s, it was a glass ceiling. I was told by my family and friends, if I decided to work after my studies in the UK, I would never get to the top because I wouldn't be allowed to get to the top. So as a foreigner, there would be a glass ceiling. That glass ceiling has now been well and truly shattered. And I believe anyone in this country can get anywhere, regardless of race, religion, or background. But we have still got a long way to go. 
and we must keep pushing and promoting a diversity. And that's why I'm so proud of Change the Race Ratio, the initiative that I uh, launched at the CBI in October 2020 in the midst of the pandemic, which has been received so well by business and institutions across the board. You know, I, re I really like your point right at the beginning, um, the importance of diversity and inclusion together. You know, a diverse w workforce gives you that uh, diversity of thought, experience, that cognitive diversity, and it's the inclusion that unleashes the power of it. So, um, yeah, that inclusion. You've got to create the environment, the, the culture, the mentoring, and, and it's that environment that unleashes and allows that diversity to actually flourish. So time is not on our side and we really appreciate um, you, you um, sparing time out of your busy schedule to be with us this evening. But before I do let you go, um, I'd like to, to finish with our traditional quick fire question. Who's the, uh, the best leader you've ever known or worked with and why? I, I, I have to say that my, my own father, my own father, General Villamoria, was, was a great leader. And, you know, he, to this day, I have, I mean, I've seen it firsthand. I saw you know, in, a, in a gathering when he, here he is, an army commander, commander in chief, and in a gathering, he would say to my brother and to me, meet this young officer. And there were lots of people around. Do you know what he did the other day? He is the best. He is so impressive. And you could see this person was brimming with pride. And I, I've met some of those young officers today who are generals today, and they remember a fleeting 30 seconds with my father and the, my father taking the trouble to stop his convoy of flag cars and pilot vehicles and radio vehicles and just stop and meet a young officer on the side of a road in the middle of a desert. And that young officer today is a generally never forget that one minute that my father spent with him. So that's the effect you have when you really care for the people uh, you lead. Um, and and you know, he, he believed in a happy and an efficient team. And he was also a soldier soldier. His troops loved him. And um, you know, that, if you can be that sort of a leader, uh, it's got to be a most wonderful, privileged position to be in. So clearly understood people. Who's the most inspirational leader from history and why? Again, I, I, I do admire the Churchill's never give up, never ever give up spirit, which I try to live and I have lived, I suppose. Uh, I also really admire Mahatma Gandhi. Mm -hmm. uh, and my, in fact, my grandfather, Brigadier Benamoria, his, his battalion now, um, that he was commissioned into as the 4th Battalion of the Guards Regiment in India. But during his career as a colonel, he also commanded the oldest battalion in the Indian Army, the 1st Battalion of the Madras Regiment. And when he was commanding that, it was uh, around 1946-47 at the time of India's partition. And in fact, at the time of India's partition, 1947, my grandfather was sent with his battalion to protect Mahatma Gandhi. So I've heard stories about Mahatma Gandhi firsthand from my grandfather and there's pictures of my grandfather next to Mahatma Gandhi at the time of India's independence uh, and, and and Mahatma Gandhi that's the, what his sayings there's so many of them that are just my favorite and I and I really one of them is that you've got to believe in what you're doing you've got to believe in yourself because your beliefs become your thoughts your thoughts become your words your words become your actions your actions become your habits your habits form your character and your character determines your destiny and that is one of Mahatma Gandhi's sayings that I just love and I, I try to live. And the other one is um, live as if you're going to die tomorrow, learn as if you're going to live forever. And I think the learning never stops. I think you've got to be always curious. You've got to always want to learn, nonstop learning. And you know, even after all my qualifications before I started my business, I'm now 
an alumnus of three business schools, of the Cranfield School of Management, the London Business School, and the Harvard Business School, because I've gone and attended business schools uh, for almost 20 years. I probably have the equivalent of two MBAs, but I've loved the learning uh, that I've had from my attending business school, and it never stops. Most valuable leadership lesson you have learned? There are many that I've learned, uh, but I, 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 I think the best advice I've ever received, uh, and it takes me right back to the beginning, when I was starting work, my first proper job was training to be a chartered accountant with EY, with what is today Ernst Young in the city of London. And I remember when I went back on a holiday to India, and my father was a major general commanding a mountain division on the Chinese border. Uh, and Darjeeling, where the tea comes from, came under his command. It was a place called Kalimpong, beautiful place. And I remember going there and I said, Dad, I'm going to start my first proper job. Could you give me some advice, please? He said, you want some advice about work? Come and see me in my office. I had to get an appointment from his ADC. And, and I remember being with him in this huge office. And I phenomenal advice he gave me. The best advice he gave me was this. He said, son, you're starting at the bottom. You'll be given lots of jobs and tasks. The first thing when you're given a task is do it. The next thing is do that little bit extra that you were not asked to do. And that's the best advice I've been given in my life. Because my father was saying to me is always take initiative. Always be innovative, always be creative, always go the extra mile. With hindsight, what would you tell a young uh, Karan Billimora uh, living in a flat in Fulham Road about leadership? Living in that uh, roof conversion at 431 Fulham Palace Road overlooking Bishop's Park, driving around Albert, the 295-pound battered Citroën de Chavaux that needed push-starting every day and looking through the holes on the floor of the car um, when you were driving, uh, you could see the road, uh, it, 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 carrying a ton of beer. And I'm not exaggerating. When a pallet of beer is delivered at your doorstep of 72 cases, it weighs exactly one ton. And carrying those all the way up flights of stairs and then carrying them back down, putting them in the car, doing, delivering them to the restaurants. It was tough, but I look back with happiness on, on those days. And, and if I'd known then how much I would learn at every step of this entrepreneurial journey, um, it's just been amazing. I could not have predicted how much I've learned. And that's where this saying, another saying, a bit of a corny saying, but it's very true. Uh, success is not a destination. It's a journey. And it's a journey of learning and a journey of leadership. And I've been privileged to have been on that journey. And I'm still on it. What's society's biggest leadership challenge in the future? We, we live in the most amazing, amazing globalized world where the world is more interconnected uh, than ever before, with more interdependent uh, than ever before. And I think in that world, uh, we as a global community have seen a global challenge beyond anything, probably since the Second World War, in terms of this global pandemic. And what I've seen in this pandemic, what, is, what has worked and what has not worked, and what has not worked is government working on its own. What has worked is government and business collaborating and working together. What has worked is when the global community uh, works uh, together. And, and I think that's going to be the challenge going ahead is working together in a collaborative way to address the huge challenges that we can see in front of us. I mean, 2021 is a watershed year for the United Kingdom. This is the year when we're showing global leadership. This is where global Britain actually is real. 
where we chaired the G7 and I chaired the B7 as the CBI president. We've got G20 coming up. We've got COP26, the UN Climate Change Conference coming up. Climate change is real. It's going to be a huge challenge going forward. And we've got to do it together as a global community with Britain showing real leadership. And uh, if I may, I'll close with uh, one of my favorite sayings. My wife is South African. And there's an African saying that if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And we've got to go together. And I, and, and I don't like this term about, from the pandemic about building back better. I think we need to build forward better. A great way to finish. Lord Billamoria, thank you very much indeed. Um, it's been fascinating to listen to you once again and, and an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's my privilege and pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Well, what a fascinating interview. I hope you agree. What struck me first was Lord Billamoria's rich and diverse childhood, quite immersed in the culture and lifestyle of the Indian military, which whilst evidently setting the foundations of his character and later his leader attributes, his life took a very different turn to that of his father and grandfather. And it was into business rather than the Indian army that he chose to pursue his passion and make his mark. We talked about what makes a good entrepreneur, to which Lord Billy Moria said, you've got to have guts to do it in the first place, to take risk and to cross the gap. It's about putting your ideas into action and sticking with it when others might give up, which is all about having resilience, as he referred back to Churchill's spirit of never giving up. That then led on to a discussion about risk in which he talked about calculated risk, which is certainly for us in the military, something we are familiar with. He said, people often focus on what's the best thing that can happen rather than what's the worst thing that can happen and planning and com-planning, contingency planning accordingly. He also talked about luck. He said luck comes into it quite a lot, which he described as when determination meets opportunity. Linked to serendipity, he said, seeing what everyone else can see, but thinking what no one else has thought. I was also drawn to the vision that he set out for Cobra Beer, which as we spoke about is to aspire and achieve against all odds with integrity. And I think a lot of companies out there would resonate with the aspiration to achieve against all odds, but it was really taken by his addition of with integrity. And again, something that's intrinsic to us serving in the military, obviously integrity being one of our core values and standards. And to that he says, it's not about being the best in the world, it's about being the best for the world. It's not what you do, but how you do it. We then moved on to talk about leadership through crisis, something that many people, many leaders across all sectors have been thinking about and having to enact in the last 18 months or so. Crisis, he says, comes out of the blue. No one can predict it, whether it be the economic crash of 2009 or indeed the COVID-19 pandemic of late. Three times, he said, he nearly lost the business throughout his career. Yet there's certain things that always got him through. Firstly, a strong brand. An extraordinary brand, he says, doesn't compromise on principles, has a consistent look and experience with loyal brand champions, and of course is profitable. You've got to have a good team with loyalty, and he referenced back to the armies of Spree de Corps, liking it to that he's experienced in the, in the Cobra team. And finally, integrity, linking it back to the vision of Cobra Beer. And with these three, he says, with a strong brand, a good team with loyalty and integrity, 
any business can lead through crisis. We then moved on to talk about diversity and inclusion, concepts which Lord Billy Moria said go hand in hand, and something to which he is an active campaigner for, both in business and in politics. And he said it's important, not just because it's the right thing to do, but because the facts speak for themselves. It makes business sense. And finally, I was taken by Lord Billimoria's closing words when we were discussing society's biggest leadership challenges in the future, to which he talked about global Britain, reflecting that we are at a watershed moment, and as such, we needed to show real leadership. He was not a big fan of building back better, he said. He much prefers building forward together. If you like what you've heard today, please do subscribe to our podcast. Please also share and comment. That would be much appreciated. For more information on leadership in the British Army, do visit our website, Centre for Army Leadership. And of course, follow us on our social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn.